0: I think part of the weakness of the Christian church has been the sacred-secular split, where Christianity is assigned to the sacred realm, right? So we think of religion as something that applies to church and Bible study, and maybe, you know, some of our personal morality. But we often don't know how it applies to politics and economics and the arts and entertainment and business and industry. The whole rest of the world gets put into the secular realm where I've, I've literally had Christian businessmen say, well, oh no, in business, we have to play
1: by a different set of rules. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview. Welcome to Outstanding, friends. This is a place where we have critical conversations about the news of the day and the ideas that shape us, as always. I'm your tour guide, Joseph Backholm. And today's program is part two of an ongoing conversation that we are having with Professor Nancy Piercy She has written a really important book called The Toxic War on Masculinity: How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. Now, this is part two, which means if you did not hear part one, you should probably pause this, although you could probably go back after the fact and you're not going to uh, hurt too much. But part one is going to be really important background to part two, because in part one, we really discussed the history in the Western world and in our American context of masculinity and how things like modernity and growing secularism and fathers being removed from the home have shaped our understanding of what it means to be a man and what it means to be masculine and the things that boys are struggling with uh, today. But here in part two, now that we have kind of diagnosed the problem we're going to be a bit more hopeful I think and we are going to look to the eternal truths that God has given us about the way he created us what he intended for us to be and uh figure out what the antidote to toxic masculinity is and join me now for part two of this again is Professor Nancy Piercy Nancy thank you so much for being with me today
0: thank you good talking with you
1: well last time we got into uh Andrew Tate. And kind of as this uh, archetype, perhaps, of what most of us would agree actually is uh, toxic masculinity. And the appeal that he has, even in in Christian contexts, and he kind of projects, and and, and not just him, but there are others, there is this appeal of this kind of hyper view of masculinity um, that uh, young men are being drawn to in significant numbers, in part because, as your research described, young men feel like they are beaten up a bit and discouraged from being masculine, yet that's something they desire. What do you see as the antidote to that?
0: Yes. Well, when I was writing uh, The Toxic War and Masculinity, um, I was not expecting to find this answer. I kind of stumbled across sociological data on Christian men. And it turns out that Christian men break all the negative stereotypes they, in fact, test out as the most loving and engaged husbands and fathers. And the reason this is so unexpected is, if anything, in the media, you usually get the opposite, right? That evangelical Christian fathers are exhibit A of toxic masculinity. That any notion of male headship in the home is going to turn men into overbearing, oppressive patriarchs. I'll give you just one example. I found lots of them. But um, the co-founder of the Church Two movement, which followed the Me Too movement, Uh, said this, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. And the the social scientists, like psychologists and sociologists, were listening to these accusations and saying, where's your evidence? You're making these charges, but where's your data? And so they went out and did the studies. And I quote about a a dozen different studies in my book. And they all found out to, to my surprise, as well as anyone else's, that in fact, Christian men test out as very loving, happy fathers and husbands. So their wives were tested separately and their wives also report the highest level of happiness with their husband's treatment of them. The evangelical fathers spend more time with their children than any other group, uh, 3.5 hours more than secular men with their children, both in terms of shared activities like church youth group and sports, and in terms of discipline, like setting bedtime or setting limits on screen time. Evangelical couples divorce at a lower rate than any other group, 35% lower than secular couples. And then the real shock is they actually have the lowest rate of domestic abuse and violence of any major group in America. And and so it's completely debunked, the media stereotypes. Sometimes a quote can kind of summarize it for you. So let me give you this quote. Um, Perhaps uh, one of America's top marriage researchers is Brad Wilcox at the University of Virginia. And to give you a sense of his stature, he writes for places like the New York Times. And so this is a New York Times article in which he said, It turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Of course, they're focusing on the wives because the assumption is that these marriages are oppressive to the wives. But no, the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. Even Christians don't know this. You know, I had to go digging in the academic literature to find it. And, and then Brad Wilcox, actually, this is my favorite part of the quote. He then turns to his fellow academicians, right? His other sociologists, and says Academics need to cast aside their prejudices about religious conservatives and evangelicals in particular. Conservative Protestant married men with children. Are consistently the most active, active and expressive fathers and the most yeah. emotionally engaged husbands. So this is wonderful news. Um, it's not just you know a pep talk from a religious leader, but this is evidence based findings. These are rigorous yeah. empirical tests, and we should be Nancy, bold about bringing it into the public realm.
1: I can hear the rebuttal right now that the reason those results came out that way is because all of these evangelical women have just been brainwashed and they're not allowed to say their true feelings about things because of this whole headship thing. And so they're just lying. They're not actually happier than everybody else. That's just what they've been programmed to say. What's your response to that?
0: Yeah, of course, I have gotten that response. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes people will say, well, of course, they said they're happy. Their husband's sitting right next to them. And so it's important to say, no, they were actually interviewed separately and it's important to say this: these were not religious studies. Some of them, some of the ones I uh, cite, were by religious scholars, but a lot of them were not, and they used uh, large objective databases like the General Social Survey, which is done by the University of Chicago, and which is used by all kinds of policymakers and and scholars and journalists and people who want to have you know, they'll pull out data um, from various groups. You know, if you want to study Jewish people, if you want to study, you know, divorced people, whatever, you, you know, you can go to these large public databases. And so that's what most of the most rigorous studies were done with these large public databases where women were not feeling like, oh, I have to give the right answer because my husband's there. Or I don't even have to give the right answer because it's a religious group doing the survey. And so I think we're getting close to pretty accurate findings from these from these studies they were very large you know in in the tens of thousands some of them in terms of the numbers i think we're getting a pretty reliable finding on terms of women actually saying yes in fact i, I am happier and by the way it overlaps with other studies other studies that have been done um, on on how who's the happiest in their sex lives and yes. these also consistently find that religious conservative women uh, report a highest level of happiness with their sex lives. This goes back to, I think it was 1977, where Red Book magazine found this. Red Book is not a Christian magazine. <laughs> uh, if, right. In case you remember that, if, uh, you probably don't. It was a women's magazine back then. Oh, I do. It was a secular <laughs> magazine, and they did a very large survey, and one of the questions had to do with religion. And they were shocked that the women who tested out as being happiest in their sex lives with their husbands we're Christians, and it's consistently shown the same thing every time the surveys are done. And
1: that is, of course, very frustrating to the prophets of the sexual revolution who have assured us that the only sure path to happiness is doing whatever you want with your genitals at any time they are moved to do something. And so this idea that uh, monogamy and fidelity and and lifelong uh Sexual relationships with a single person is actually the surest sign to happiness, though I agree with you. That is what the data indicates is an inconvenient truth, uh, to be sure, for the sexual revolution. But, Nancy, I want you to connect the dots for us, if you can, because you just described how the data shows that Christian men are happier than non-Christian men. Christian wives are happier than non-Christian Uh, wives, and that Christian couples happen to be most fulfilled. Is this just a uh, coincidence? Why is it that that's what the data is showing?
0: Well, let me show you by contrast. Sometimes contrasting compare can be helpful. Um, The first pushback I always get is, but haven't we all heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as the rest of the culture? In fact, in my research, I found that that's one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. When I tell people this, they say, "Well, yeah, I've used that." <laughs> um, so, so the researchers did go back to the data, and they separated out truly committed Christian men, defined primarily by just attending church regularly, from men who identify as evangelical but who are merely nominal. Uh, they don't attend church regularly. My students don't even know what the what the word "nominal" means, so I have to tell them N O M is the Latin root meaning name. So it means Christian in name only. And these men test out dramatically different. They fit all of the toxic stereotypes. They, in fact, uh, their wives report the the lowest level of happiness. They spend the least amount of time with their children. They divorce at a higher rate than secular men, 20% more than secular men, and the real sad thing, the tragic thing is they have the highest rate of domestic violence of any group in America, higher even than secular men. And so people have asked me, well, why would they be even worse than secular men? And apparently it's that they, a secular man can be hitting his wife and kids and he doesn't feel any religious justification but the nominal christian man who's hitting his wife and kids feels religious des- justification he'll say well i'm the head you should be submitting to me you know i'm the head so i had to put my wife in her place and so ironically this is what the church is up against you know on the one hand we have men who are better than secular men and who we should be supporting and affirming and encouraging <laughs> Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, the church has to deal with these men who are sort of at the fringes of the Christian world, who are using religious language like headship, but are infusing those terms with secular meaning of dominance, entitlement, control, and so on. And how can we have a better program of discipleship to pull Mm -hmm. those men in and really help them to understand what a biblical view of marriage and headship really means?
1: Yeah, I think you highlight an important reason why we have to be a bit more thoughtful about terms like evangelical or Christian because self-identification will end up pulling in a group that is actually not very similar at all. And you have people who take their faith seriously, and you can see in the habits of their lives and the way they conduct themselves, that they are serious about that. There are others who will identify that way culturally, but there's lots of evidence that they're not serious about it. And those two groups behave very differently. And as you just illustrated there, the nominal Christians, those who will identify as Christians but rarely attend church and are certainly not serious disciples in their life, they will in many ways behave worse. And the religious justification for their bad behavior is an interesting explanation for that. But Nancy, I think one thing I want to dig into here with you as we try to provide an antidote to toxic masculinity uh, inside the church or outside of it is kind of reframing the goals of what it means to be a man. And you draw a distinction between what it means to be a good man and what it means to be a real man. And this idea that Toxic masculinity really is coming from this pursuit of being a real man, which is kind of defined personally and vaguely and culturally, uh, as opposed to being a good man, which certainly scripture as uh, a definition of what that is for us. Why does that matter?
0: Yeah. I, um, by the way, it's not my distinction. It's a distinction that was drawn by a sociologist. You know, this this is the most fact-based book I've written. Yeah. Um, so it draws heavily on sociological data and historical data, as we talked about in the first section, the history. But um, I put this at the front of the book. And here's why. I'll give you a little background. This has proven to be the most controversial book I've ever written. Mm-hmm. And I was not expecting that because I did write a book You know, my previous book was on issues like abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, you know, these cutting edge issues. But in the Christian world, at least, this has been more controversial. When I write a book, I always teach classes on the manuscript and have reading groups, you know, to give me lots of feedback. And when they would tell their family and friends we were working through a manuscript on masculinity, invariably, the first question was, whose side is she on? You know, like, like like this is something you, you have to take sides on. And male, male readers tended to assume that a woman writing a book on masculinity would be a male bashing feminist. They would just expected that. More, more progressive types tended to assume I was some sort of reactionary culture warrior. And so I did put this study right at the beginning of the book to sort of overcome that initial hostility or, or at least suspicion. And this was a sociologist who's very well-known, speaks all around the world. So he came up with a very clever experiment where he would ask young men two questions. First, he asked them, what does it mean to be a good man? If you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man, what does that mean? And the sociologist said all around the globe, young men had no trouble answering that. They would immediately start listing things like honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing. Uh, Look out for the little guy. I like that one. Be a provider, be a protector, be responsible. And the sociologists would say, where'd you learn that? And they'd say, I don't know. It's just in the air we breathe. Or if they were in a Western country, they were likely to say it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. But then he would follow up with the second question, which was, what if I say to you, man up, be a real man? And the young men themselves would say, oh, no, no, that's completely different. That means be tough, be strong, uh, suck it up, play through pain, Um, win at all costs, be competitive, get rich, get laid. I'm using their language. And so the sociologist himself concluded that all around the world, young men do have a sense of what it means to be the good man. It's part of the image of God. They inherently, intrinsically, innately know what it means to be a good man. They know that their unique masculine strengths, you know, because men are stronger in many ways than women uh, physically, um, that their unique masculine strengths were not given them just to get whatever they want, but to provide, protect, and take care of the people that they love, fight for them if necessary. But they also feel this cultural pressure, which they responded to with, you know, the real man, which is very, very different, and which, if it's disconnected from a moral vision, can slide into those toxic traits like dominance and entitlement and control. And so I think on the one hand, this is very encouraging, right? We can be confident that men do know that their natural their natural inherent character is not contrary to the biblical ethic. It's mm-hmm. not. So when we try to persuade men to live by a biblical ethic, we're not asking them to be contrary to who they intrinsically are. And it also means that it's a good idea to focus on those. Most men don't uh, respond very well to being called toxic, right? Nobody would. But what we can do then is encourage, support, affirm them in that innate built-in knowledge of what it means to be a good man made in God's image.
1: So we have a lot of dads of sons who are listening, and we also have Gen Zers who are themselves trying to figure out what it means to be a man. And do you think it's then fair to say that we need to um, have the right goal where we're not trying to necessarily be masculine in any particular sense? We're just trying to be good. We're trying to be who God made us to be. And that that, uh, includes, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you know meekness that Jesus demonstrated, which is not weakness, it's meekness, but also times of, of courage. Is it helpful if we just kind of reject this whole masculine and non-masculine framework and just pursue goodness instead as men and women, and then in the pursuit of that, we end up finding who God created us to be?
0: Well, I wouldn't say entirely because I don't want to deny the distinctives between men and women. Let me give you one more study, since I have so many in my book. Um, mm-hmm. And this, again, was a global study. So it was of non-Christian cultures as well. And the, it was by an anthropologist. And he was not a Christian either. But he did the first cross-cultural study of concepts of masculinity. And what he found was that despite differences between cultures there is a common code of masculinity that they all share all around the globe. And he calls it the three Ps, that the good man uh, does the three Ps, provide, protect, and procreate, Mm -hmm. by which he means, you know, raise a family, build into the next generation. And I thought, again, how encouraging that men made in God's image do recognize that even when there are distinctive strengths to being masculine, They have a purpose, and it doesn't take a Christian to recognize them. It's built in, being made in God's image. The three Ps, provide, Mm -hmm. protect, and procreate. I also, um, to to tie it then to biblical um, revelation, I also tend to take people back to Genesis. Because right after God creates male and female, he gives the first job description. It's the cultural mandate. You know, and half my students don't know that term. So let me explain. The cultural mandate is God has created male and female, and then he turns to them. First thing, he says, is be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. It's the first job description. And in the highly streamlined language of Genesis 1, we can kind of unpack several layers, because be fruitful doesn't just mean have a family. I mean, anthropologists tell us that all social institutions grow out of the family, You know, the extended family, the clan, the tribe, the nation, and then particular institutions like the government, the school, the church, the marketplace. And so that means be fruitful and multiply means build all of the social institutions. It's a very rich calling. And then uh, subdue the earth means harness the natural resources. So, of course, most cultures start with agriculture and then mining and technology and inventing computers, composing music. Uh, one of my students said, oh, come on, composing music. And I so I said to him, I play the violin. What's the violin made out of? Wood. <laughs> What's the bow made out of? Course here. All the transcendent beauty that we associate with music starts with harnessing the natural resources of creation. And so this is a very broad and very rich understanding of of masculinity that it's not just, you know, go to church and have a Bible study, but that all of your work, everything you do is done to God's glory in, in obedience to the cultural mandate. And so it gives men a very wide scope. For a sense of achievement, accomplishment, um, making an impact, mastery—all of these things that tend to appeal, especially to men, it's there in the cultural mandate. And so, I think if we teach that broader understanding of, you know, what our purpose is, I think men will find a lot more in terms of you know what it means to be a man—a much fuller vision.
1: I have a theory I want to propose to you and get your reaction to, um, because ultimately we know we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And I do think that uh, Satan is always trying to derail us from the plan God has for our lives. And I think that he put within men a desire to create and conquer and, you know, defeat dragons and devils and ultimately be heroic and, you know, rescue princesses and do all of those things that we read about in fairy tales. but I am now kind of on this theory that you know, we talked in, in episode one about the risks of modernity and pulling men out of the home in an agrarian society, taking them into factories and basically away from their families where they their influence over their family was greatly diminished. But one of the other things that has happened in modernity is all of the online lives that we have developed. And I am under the uh, conviction at this point, and maybe conviction is too strong, but maybe not, that the combination of video games and pornography has allowed men to channel all of their God-given energies into worlds that are fake and receive the feeling of satisfaction that God put within them to, do, to desire, to defeat devils, to conquer something, to per- persevere, in a video game world, you you know you accomplish level whatever you get to because you spent 19 hours a day for the last four months working on this. You accomplish it. You have this sense of satisfaction, but you haven't actually accomplished anything in the real world. So you've taken all that energy that God has created and put inside of you and basically poured it down the drain uh, toward accomplishing something that is accomplishing nothing in the same way uh the pornography in the, in the way that God wired us to you know men and women to be together has perverted those desires abused those desires so they have a sense of satisfaction without actually uh, creating a family without creating a relationship without creating children that, that will then help fulfill what God made us to do uh, do you think I'm all wet with that Theory? I-
0: you no, you know, you're right on target. You're right on target. And, um, you know, and, and that's why it's it's one reason that I come back to the cultural mandate several, several times in my book, because, um, it, like I said, it, it should be the way that we that as Christians, we give men a sense of challenge and mastery and meaning. Um, I think part of the weakness of the Christian church has been the sacred secular split where. Christianity is assigned to the sacred realm, right? So we think of religion as something that applies to church and Bible study and maybe, you know, some of our personal morality. But we often don't know how it applies to politics and economics and the arts and entertainment and business and industry. The whole rest of the world gets put into the secular realm where I've, I've literally had Christian businessmen say, well, oh, no, in business, we have to play by a different set of rules, you know, I'm a Christian at church, but in my work, you play by a different set of rules. And I think that's one of the greatest reasons that the church has had so little impact on the culture, because it's been locked up into the sacred realm. And to be honest, I think men have perhaps been more uh weakened by that, maybe even than women, because it it says to men, you know, be nice, read your Bible, you know, sit around and have a prayer meeting. <laughs> but it doesn't give men a sense of challenge. It doesn't give them a sense of, but what, how do I take my Christianity into the rest of my life? How do I live as a Christian is in politics in my work and so on. And so it's the sacred secular split that I think has really hamstrung the church on addressing men in a, in in an effective way. And I think that if we could restate the cultural mandate, you know, in language that says to men in particular, you have a much richer calling. Um, There's a a, uh, website called Church for Men, and it's all about how can we uh, make our churches more attractive to men? Because I I don't know if you know this, but the average American church congregation is 60% women, 40% men. And so it is a problem that the form of Christianity that we typically teach has not been appealing to men, has not given them that sense of challenge, mastery, accomplishment, and so on. Um, And so we need to make sure they have the real deal. Like you said, they're going to be attracted to the substitutes unless we give them the real thing. Yeah.
1: We are in an ongoing exercise around here to try to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, which is a biblical command and a direct rebuttal to the idea that there are Different sets of rules for us in our church life on Sunday, and a then there are in our um, quote unquote other life outside of church and in our professional life or our academic life or any of those things. Um, the idea that we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ is a recognition that there are there's only one set of rules that God gives us that applies to all things at all times, and and we have to. Uh, develop the discipline uh, to recognize that. And we don't get to break those rules just because we find it inconvenient. That divide does not exist. But Nancy, as we try to tie a bow on this idea of figuring out what it means to be um, a godly man, if it, whether you know masculine, a good man, a real man, all of those things. And ultimately, our goal is to be like Christ. Where do you find the best summary for a young man, for a father, uh, to kind of illustrate what it is that, uh, that men should be striving to be?
0: Well, I do have a whole section on the book on Jesus as the ultimate man, mm-hmm. uh, but sometimes we don't even recognize how revolutionary Jesus was unless we know how he was standing against his culture. The one that struck me, for example, was Jesus blessing the children. We see that picture in Sunday school literature, and it's very sweet and sentimental. Um, But actually, he was standing against his culture in a big way. There's a whole book on it by a historian saying that you have to realize in the Roman culture at that time, children were considered non-persons. They they had no status or uh, uh, value. Uh, A father could kill his child. In the Roman culture, he could kill his child for any reason. He had that legal authority. women were denigrated in part because of their association with children. You know, the low view of children often leads to a low view of women since women spend so much of their life bearing and raising children. And so when you can understand then why the disciples wanted to shoo them away, shoo away the parents when they brought their children um, and why Jesus, when he said, no, let the children come to me, that was actually revolutionary in that day. And when he said, Unless you uh, enter the kingdom as a child, you're not going to enter. You know, if you read the church fathers, they're like, what? What does that mean? (laughs) That was still very revolutionary for them. Who would hold up children as a model for adults? Nobody had ever done that before. So if we go back in history, we can sometimes see, and of course, there were other things like, you know, in in Jewish culture, women were not supposed to uh, be spoken to in public by somebody who was not a relative. And Jesus did speak to them. And certainly they were not to be touched. Mm -hmm. But when Jesus healed women, he touched them. Um, Peter's mother-in-law, mentioned specifically that he laid his hands on her. Um, So there were, uh, and of course, women were not supposed to learn the Torah, you know, the the law. And Jesus... broke that in a big way with Mary. When Mary sat at his feet, that was the symbol back then of being a disciple sitting at his feet was, was the language saying, you're, you're a disciple of this person. And you know, women were not supposed to be disciples. So uh, I think is. and by the way, notice that he, um, he scolds Martha, who is doing the traditionally feminine thing of fixing dinner. (laughs) So I, Jesus stood against his culture in a lot of ways that, Unless we go back and see the history, we don't understand. He actually was breaking cultural expectations in many ways and the way he exemplified masculinity.
1: Nancy Piercy, the book is Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. And I really appreciate your time in both of these conversations that we've had. And again, if you are just joining us uh, for this conversation. Part one is important for you to go back and listen to as we talk about the background for the Toxic War on Masculinity. But thank you so much. Uh, you have, uh, you've blessed us in this conversation, but certainly in the, in the book. And I'm going to, again, encourage people to go to Amazon, uh, The Toxic War on Masculinity. You need to read this because it is a uh, helpful insight into the world that we all live in, that we are living as men, that we are raising future men, and uh, that we are discipling and ministering and being ambassadors of the gospel. So, Nancy, thank you so much for your time, uh, for your work on this, and for the conversation today.
0: Thank you. Thanks for your great questions. It was a good conversation.
1: I enjoyed it myself. And for those of you who have been listening in, we are so thankful, because really the conversation is for you. And if you have learned something and enjoyed this, share it with a friend because they probably will as well. And make sure you like and subscribe wherever you have found us. New episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Also love to hear your comments and questions. Email me at outstanding at washingtonstand.com. Love to hear suggestions on topics that you'd like us to talk about on how to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Your recommendations are always welcome and a blessing. I look forward to the next one. My name is Joseph Backholm, and this has been Outstanding. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview.